is a message from one of our Sunday celebrations. And you can find out more about Jubilee by visiting our website at www.jubilee.org.uk. Such fun. Luke chapter 9. Verse 18. We've kind of had this conversation. The, the other Saturday when we got together uh, as a leadership team, we had a conversation about what TV programs you can quote from. And Because uh, most of what I watch, I'm a bit nervous about quoting from. But I am aware that Miranda is fairly universally liked. So, so we're okay with that one. Uh, James has dared me to quote from How I Met Your Mother a bit later on. That's a whole different kettle of fish. Right, Luke chapter 9, starting at verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son. My chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Uh, let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this reading. Thank you for these stories, Lord. We ask that you would teach us things that will change our lives today. We want to see you in your glory through your word this morning. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would bring it to, to, to life for us. In Jesus' name. Amen. I was really quite excited when Graham told me um, 
what passage he, he was asking me to speak on this morning. Because this is one of the most important conversations that Jesus has. Uh, and in the Synoptic Gospels, in Matthew, Mark and Luke, the whole Gospel hinges on this conversation. Uh, and you know in life you have those kinds of conversations, don't you? You, you, have, you have conversations with people and from that point on, everything can be different. Everything changes from that conversation onwards. I, I have a little visual illustration of just such a conversation. Uh, ladies, do you like it? Yeah, okay. I'm glad you like it. Mel loved it. Uh, this is what I gave to Mel uh, instead of an engagement ring. <laughs> so I, I'm not that big on romance. Uh, we didn't do the Eurostar to Paris. I didn't wine and dine her. Um, I didn't, you know, bended knee, big rock. No. Uh, actually, to be fair, they hadn't built the Eurostar, had they, at the time? And um, we were still at school, so whining and dining would have been illegal. Um, and, and therefore, probably a bit suspicious if Mel had worn an engagement ring. But, so, so my engagement was, will you marry me? And we've kept the dog. Because oh. everything from that point in life onwards changed. You'll have that conversation one day, darling. <laughs> and this is a conversation where everything changes. Up to now, Jesus has done some amazing things. He's taught some amazing things. But now he begins to teach them something he's never taught them before. So let's just start to put this in context. He asks this question, who do the crowds say that I am? And their response is not a surprise to us because actually Luke has kind of preempted the conversation. If we go back to verse 7, when Herod is a bit confused about what's happening... Uh, we read that it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. So Luke has already kind of planted in our mind, this is what the crowds are saying about Jesus. And I mean, the idea that John the Baptist uh, has come back to life is just weird, isn't it? But you have to understand that for the people in Israel at this time, they had been through 400 years of prophetic silence. It's equivalent to the length of time that they were in slavery in Egypt, the time between Joseph and Moses. For 400 years, they haven't had a prophet of God who has come and brought them God's word. They've had, they've had political leaders. They've had a few insurgents, the Maccabees. and you know, There's been stuff kicking off, but they haven't really heard from God until John the Baptist comes. And then when John the Baptist comes, there is revival in the land. There, there is a revival Under John the Baptist, thousands of people flock out. All of Jerusalem goes out to the Jordan to be baptised by John the Baptist. He is an incredibly significant figure in their history. And Jesus kind of comes in on the back of this revival and he stirs the nation. Now, the numbers that we read in the Bible, kind of, they don't hit home very hard, do they? So when you read that there are 5,000 men listening to Jesus preach, that doesn't mean very much. Because quite honestly, just before Christmas, if you went into Westfield, there'd be 5,000 men in the mouths of Westfield desperately trying to find their last-minute Christmas present. There would be 5,000, because that's how many they hold. I, I worked on that, so I know that. Or if you, if you, if you live in Derby, you know, there are probably 5,000 cars uh, queued up at... What's the name roundabout on the A52 trying to get into the city every morning? There certainly are on Mark Eaton Island at the moment while they're doing those roadworks. 
So 5,000 doesn't sound like much when you live in a 21st century city. Uh, If you want a picture of what 5,000 people is like, you need to come out to the Peak District with me on a lovely sunny day and I will take you walking in an isolated, rural, agricultural community. Uh, And and the idea of 5,000 people gathering out there is quite astonishing. Um, And as we drive out there, we probably won't see another car. If we do, it'll be a traffic jam. And if there's three in a row, it'll be because there's a tractor on the road somewhere. 5,000 people, 15, 20,000 maybe the whole crowd, out listening to Jesus. This is a huge stir. And the reason is, they think of him as being this significant, that he is like John the Baptist, or Elijah, or Jeremiah, or Isaiah. It is hundreds of years since God moved in this way. Here is a really significant man. Now, actually... We do well to talk about Jesus because people regard him highly. It's, it's so easy when we're sharing our faith, isn't it, to avoid Jesus. There's lots of things we can talk about. You know, we can talk about gay marriage and women bishops and the disestablishment of the Church of England. I'd love to talk about that for hours. You know, but naming Jesus, that's, that's, that's much harder. I don't know you. I find it much harder to do that. I can talk about politics and you know, church issues and theology, but actually talking about Jesus. Well, who is Jesus? Because that's a great, great question. Of course, Jesus isn't satisfied with just, well, who do other people say I am? Jesus wants to narrow this down. Who do you say I am? And this is the life-changing question. And maybe you're hearing it for the first time this morning. Maybe you've been thinking about it. And, and maybe, is it time to come to a conclusion? You don't have to rush. But maybe today's the day. Maybe you've answered this question years and years ago and what what we're going to look at is what Jesus says. Well, these are the consequences of that choice. We're going to think about them in a minute. Who do you say I am? And Peter, and it would be Peter, the Christ of God. You're the Messiah. You're the one who's been sent as saviour. And Jesus basically says, that's right. Now we need to keep this quiet for a while. And I I do want to pause just about... Peter at this point because Peter's one of these guys who we can caricature very very easily he's a bit gobby he speaks without getting his brain in gear he does that about the tense he speaks without really knowing what he's saying it's very easy just to think oh well that's just Peter actually something far more significant has happened here than than we'd appreciate if we just read this text because if you read this account in Matthew Jesus turns around to Peter and says blessed are you Simon son of Jonah for this was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. There is revelation here. Peter isn't just blurting this out. I think this is something that Peter has heard from God on. He's probably been thinking and praying and reflecting on it. I just want to say this because I think it's ever so easy to caricature people. You know, she's a drama queen. He's a liar. They're a junkie. It's like kind of putting a filter on your glasses and everything you see about that person becomes one shade of the same colour. The truth about people is they are far more complex than that. And, And we do people a huge disservice if we just dismiss them as or label them, they're this, they're that. They're always more than that. And Peter isn't just impetuous. Actually, he's a man who hears from God. He's a man of great faith. 
He grows into a man of huge wisdom. I want to encourage you in relationships. Don't look at people through labels and and filters. All you see is one colour of a whole spectrum. You're missing most of what they're about. So, what is it that Jesus then... Why is it life-changing? It's life-changing because Jesus then goes on to teach them what kind of Messiah he is. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This is why Jesus came. He left us with a great body of teaching. He performed some amazing miracles. He touched people's lives, but he came to go to the cross. The incarnation is about God himself taking on humanity, going to the cross, bearing in his body, as Peter says later on in one of his letters, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. Jesus came to suffer and be rejected and take upon himself our wrongdoing and all of God's wrath, his righteous anger, his judgment against sin so that we could be forgiven so that we could stand in front of God with confidence, children of God, filled with the Spirit, righteous through faith. That's why he came. He didn't come to set them free from Roman rule. Jesus has to start disabusing the disciples of what the Messiah was about. No, I came to suffer and be rejected and die. And then God vindicates him in the resurrection and raises him to glory. This is why he came. There's a couple of little things I just want to make you aware of or, or remind you of. One is, this is what people in education call scaffolding in terms of how to teach. Um, if you're in the educational world, you can nod enthusiastically at me. If you, But scaffolding is it's about how you build one teaching on another so that you can get to really complex ideas. So if you're teaching a child maths, you start with adding and taking away. Don't you? We used to do this around the dinner table, fruit bowl. I've got two apples. How many apples will I have if I add another one? And when you get the hang of adding and taking away, you can start to do multiplying, can't you? Because multiplying is just a clever form of adding, really. And then when you can multiply and divide, then you can start doing algebra. But you wouldn't sit down with a child who'd never done any maths and try and teach them Pythagoras' theorem, would you? You have to start somewhere and then build on it. And this is what Jesus is doing. He is starting with the confession that he is the Messiah. He's got the disciples to the point where they understand that he is God. And then he starts to teach them something new. Now, this is how God works in your life too. Because scaffolding isn't just an educational thing. It just makes it's common sense. Okay, So God teaches you something and then he asks you to put it into practice. And if you put it into practice, if you live out what God has shown you, he will show you more. He will actually increase your influence in the kingdom of heaven. He will increase your standing. And he will show you more so that you can live out a deeper understanding of your faith. Being a Christian is a process of maturing. The Bible speaks of this all the time. 
that we are to mature in the faith, that we are to grow up into him who is our head, that we move on from milk to solid food. It's a process of learning and applying, and then God can show us more. And as he shows us more, he gives us more influence so that we can bring more glory to him. That's what it's about. It's not hierarchical. It's not like we're climbing up the ladder to a place of great importance. It's about having more and more influence for the kingdom of God. But you have to put into practice what you've already learned. Otherwise, he can't show you more. He can't teach you algebra if you haven't learned addition. Okay? Now, there's all kinds of examples of that in the, in, in the Bible, how that works in practice. You can think about eldership in the church, because that's just like a really easy one, where uh, Paul is writing to Timothy about what you're looking for in an elder. And one of the things he says is, what you're looking, one of the things you're looking for is, how does he lead his family? What's his relationship with his wife like? How's he brought up his children? Do they love him? Do they honour him? Do they obey him? Do they know the Lord? Because if he can't manage his own family, he can't manage the church. So God gives a responsibility. Husband and wife, raising children, nurturing them in the Lord. If you do that well, then he'll say, oh, you've learned that lesson. Let's give you greater influence in the kingdom. I'm just wondering if that strikes you as being completely new or if you're okay with that. Are you okay with that? Okay. So we're doing that for his glory. And this is just a really simple example of the way that Jesus does it. Okay, you've understood that? Now I can start to teach you this. Then he starts to tell them that this is not just about his life but it's also about their lives. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, there's a phrase that gets used quite a lot, isn't it? Everyone has their cross to bear, you know. We we, we take that out of context all the time, don't we? I have a hernia at the moment, means I've had to give up golf, but we all have our cross to bear. No, that's, that's not what he's talking about. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. I used to think, oh, crikey, you've got to be martyred then. That's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is this. When you come to the understanding that Jesus is the Messiah, you give up the right of control in your own life. It was great, that word that Helen brought about submitting to him. And that song we sang about from the inside out, this is what I want, I want to serve you. This is what my life is about now. It's not about me taking control. It's not about me having the right to decide this is what I'm going to do in my life. It's about, Lord, what do you want me to do? I'm going to make this decision for you. And, and that's what it is, to deny yourself. It's to say, okay, I'm not going to do what brings me most money or makes me most popular or has the most kudos, I'm going to do what God calls me to do. I give up the right to take control of my life and I'm just going to follow him. And it's costly. It's costly. Jesus doesn't say, hey guys, if you follow me, you're going to become rich. You'll never be ill. Everyone will love you. That's not what he says. What he says is, now if you follow me, it's going to be costly. Peter 
when he's writing to disciples who are scattered all around the world, he says this, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure it? But if when you do good and suffer for it, I'm sorry, but if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Jesus has just explained that his messiahship is not at this point in time about glory. It's about suffering and rejection and death. And actually, that's a pattern for his disciples. One of the commentators on that verse in Peter says this, Peter doesn't ask us to view suffering as inevitable in the world under the curse. A life of suffering is our calling, not our fate. It is our calling just because we are God's people. It is our calling because it was Christ's calling. He suffered not for his own sake, but for the sake of God's purpose and for the salvation of others. As we follow him, we suffer for his sake and for the sake of winning others to his saving gospel. A life of suffering is our calling, not our fate. You see, it is inevitable that in following Jesus and in speaking out truth and justice, we are going to be opposed by people at times. Now, I'm not saying that everything that happens to us in life is is because we're Christians and we're being persecuted. I think we have to be really careful not to play that card. In fact, there were four cases. I don't know if you saw this on the news the other week. There were four cases that went to the European court concerning Christians who felt that their human rights had been infringed um, because their employers had prevented them from uh, exercising their faith. Did you people see some of this? Yeah. Now, I, I realise these cases are complex, but um, to give you an example of one that went to the court, one was a, a woman who worked in the health service who wanted to wear a cross around her necklace, and her employer said that's not safe because a patient could grab it. You could wear the cross as a pin uh, on your lapel, or you could wear it on a lanyard so that if somebody uh, grabs it, it will break and come away. But you, you, you can't wear it on the necklace that you've got. Now, she felt that she was, her human right to exercise her faith was being infringed. I don't think it was. I think that's a perfectly sensible decision by the court, and they turned her case down. We mustn't get to the point where every time something goes wrong or we find difficulty, we say, oh, I'm suffering for my faith. That's not always the case. But there is a really strong humanistic secular agenda that is at work. And there are occasions when we stand up for our faith and we'll be lambasted for it. I remember being in an office where there was a fraud that was going on. And it was one of those things where I I got to the point where I I couldn't live with it anymore. Not because I was part of it or implicated by it, but just because it was fraud and it was wrong. So I blew the whistle. And uh, I was not greatly liked um, by some of the people in the office, particularly one of the managers uh, who was also involved. Uh, And, you know, you just kind of have those situations, don't you? You walk in a room, someone else walks out, or the conversation stops, or things are said, you know. Was that for my faith? I think it was. I think I spoke out for justice and righteousness, and I think I was disliked for it. That is inevitable if you follow Jesus. Because what Jesus calls us to do is so contrary and different from the way that the world is. And it always has been. 
Don't, don't fall into the trap of thinking, oh, you know, this is 21st century Britain. Think about Paul going around the Roman Empire, teaching that Jesus is Lord. This conversation happens at a place called Caesarea Philippi. In the old days, that was a place where Baal was worshipped. Then the Greeks worshipped Pan there, and then they started to worship Caesar. Hence the name, Caesarea Philippi. It's a place where Caesar was worshipped. The Christian message has always been countercultural. The gospel has always gone against the way that the majority of people are going. So you will suffer. Now, that doesn't sound great, does it? I'm sure we'd all rather hear the health and wealth gospel. <laughs> follow Jesus, you'll be rich. Well, Jesus never said that. Actually, if you want to follow Jesus, you've got to be prepared to pay the price. You've got to be prepared to pay it because he did. And you've got to be prepared to pay it because that's what it costs to win people to the kingdom of God. That's what it takes to bring glory to the Father. And glory is one of Luke's kind of key themes. Um, Right through Luke's gospel, the glory of Jesus is a really important theme. So if you think it's only Luke who gives us some of those birth stories of Jesus, you know, the the choirs of angels and stuff like that, this glory is is a theme. And Jesus has his eyes lifted to it. So even when he talks about Uh, the disciples suffering for his sake, he's able to speak about coming in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Because Jesus has an eternal perspective on his life. So the writer to the Hebrews tells us that it's for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. Jesus is looking ahead at all that this suffering will accomplish. We must maintain an eternal perspective on life. Because it's so easy, isn't it, to get sucked into the grind of living. You know, we, we all, that happens to all of us. You know, and... and you just want to take a step back sometimes, don't you? That we had a year as a family where we didn't go away on holiday, um, not because we couldn't afford to, but because we didn't plan it very well, um, and therefore we couldn't afford to. Uh, it was just horrible. I don't know why. It was just horrible to go through a year without going away on a holiday with the children because we kind of said before we had children, that's one of the things we wanted to do, was give them a holiday every year so that they could look back on their childhood and have happy memories. I, I went with my dad once, um, on, on holiday, on a family holiday, only once. Uh, I didn't want that for our children. So we planned, we, we sat back and said, okay, what have we got to do to make sure that at least once a year they're going to be able to look back on something? Because otherwise life just grinds on. And it just you're just surviving, aren't you? You're just trying to, you know, oh, get through. And one day drifts into another, and one week into another, and one month into another. What's this all about? Everything we do in life has eternal repercussions. Everything we do in life has an eternal perspective. And Jesus lifts his eyes towards heaven and glory and he encourages us to do the same. It's not wrong to think this word that I could speak to somebody, this conversation I could have with my friend, this act of kindness will echo in eternity because I'm demonstrating the love of God or the grace of God. And, and, and what we find in the story of the transfiguration is, here it is demonstrated, Jesus' glory. This had a profound 
effect on Peter. He writes about it in his second letter. This experience of being on the mountain. He says, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honour and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I'm pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. God wants you to have little glimpses of glory. He wants you to have an eternal perspective on your life and on everything that he does in your life. Why are you doing the job you're doing? Is it because you're trained and qualified and you quite enjoy it? Or is it because God wants to use you in that place of employment for his glory? What are you doing raising children? Is it just something that happens, you know, if you can, you do, everybody does? Or are you raising a generation of people who will love and worship Jesus and extend his kingdom? Why are you in the sports club you're in or the choir you sing in? Is it because that's really what you enjoy? And you might enjoy it, that's fantastic. I hope you only do it if you do enjoy it. But you're there as God's ambassador. And he constantly wants us to lift our eyes. Every, the presence of the Holy Spirit is a glimpse of glory. Every prophetic word we hear on a Sunday morning, every, every word in tongues, every interpretation, every healing, every word of wisdom, every act of kindness, every demonstration of love and joy and peace and patience and goodness, every time you administer something, every time you welcome people into your home, it is a glimpse of glory. It is a work of the Holy Spirit for the glory of Jesus. And he wants us to think about that and not just grind on from one day to another. Now we are here for his eternal glory. He wants to teach us things so that we can mature in the faith and bring him more glory and extend his kingdom and have greater influence for Jesus. So in these in these verses it's like a really compressed gospel. Who do you say I am? Well who do you say he is? Is he your saviour? And if he is, are you living the life that he describes? Have you laid down your right of control in order to serve him for his glory? Is everything in your life got that eternal perspective of the glory of the kingdom of Jesus? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you make Jesus known to us. We didn't find him or discover him. You made him known. Thank you for that, Father. might be for the first time in your life right now, you just want to answer that question by saying, I believe you are the Messiah, the Saviour. I believe you're my Saviour. You can pray that in your own heart, just silently. I believe you are my Saviour. And you can know this. Jesus wants to meet with you and he wants to take you on so that you can live your life with him. If, if that is the first time you've said that, do tell somebody and pray with them afterwards. Just a friend or the person next to you, the person you came with, just tell them. Lord, 
We know and are so grateful for la- that you laid aside your majesty. You became a human being, laying aside all that you had in heaven. You humbled yourself and became obedient. Thank you for the cross, Lord Jesus. Thank you for bearing our sin and our guilt and our punishment. And we we just acknowledge that because of the cross, the Father has raised you to the highest place in heaven and given you the name that is above every name. And Lord, we want to live our lives for your glory. We want to live our lives in the righteousness that comes by faith, children of God, pure and blameless, for the glory of our King. Father, in every moment this week, we ask you, let us have little glimpses of glory. We want to see you touch lives as we speak to people and as we live around them and as we show them kindness and grace and mercy, as we speak truth. Lord, we want to see your kingdom come. Thank you for this amazing passage on which every gospel turns. Thank you for that amazing conversation we had with you when we first made you Lord. And Father, thank you that we have a glorious, eternal inheritance in Christ Jesus. Amen. Okay, we've actually reached the time where the children worked finishes so I want to honour those who are working with our young people and say we'll close there if you would like to pray with someone please do that if you've made Jesus uh, just acknowledge him as your saviour today do find a friend or someone you came with pray with them Um, we are going to have tea and coffee refreshments and uh, probably something to eat out in the foyer thank you very much we look forward to seeing you in the week Jubilee Church podcast. Feel free to check out our website at www.